Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. And it's the 28th of September, Tuesday. I'm Stuart Lohman, the Managing Editor of Biz News, coming to you from the Joburg studio. My colleagues in studio with me, I've got Jared Neves, Justin Rowe Roberts, and Nadia Swat. On the show today, Justin chats to Stephen Nathan for some investment insights. Justin, give us a quick takeaway from there. Cheers. Uh, Stu, we talk about, uh, spoke about a lot, but when Stephen Nathan speaks, I listen. We covered uh, China, uh, a PPC, and a few other very interesting related uh, local and international global investment themes. Our partners at the Financial Times give us the global look, and they focus on inflation today. And then, Nuds, you chatted to DA mayoral candidate for Cape Town, Jordan Hill-Lewis. What piqued your interest from that interview? I must say he just had such a great way of there was an enthusiasm about the way that he spoke and he seems very solid and stable and his vision for the country is something I can get on board with. My colleague in the UK, Linda von Tilburg, also chats to Samantha Skyron. She's the CEO of Oryx Desert Salt. And then Nods, you also chatted to Helen and Anthony Dugan. Can you just give a quick background to those two? So it's a couple in their late 70s that in 2015 started this mass movement to clean the rivers in Joburg because there was a sewage problem close to their home. And it's it's incredible. They've just gotten this whole community that gets together and takes care of the planet. <laughs> Excellent stuff. Looking forward to all of that. Jared, can you just give us a list on the top stories being read on business.com? So the top stories on business.com today, uh, Rob Hersev continues to be popular on the website with the community speaks piece running along rather nicely. An article written by Ivo Vechter is also picking up the pace. The freelance journalist notes that the ANC has reduced South Africa to what he calls beggar status. This is with regards to President Cyril Ramaphosa's address at the United Nations 76th General Assembly. And then Simon Lincoln Reader's column on the Biden administration is also going along rather nicely. And Nadia, on the Business TV side on YouTube? So the first theme is very similar, the three uh, Herself videos, so his live stream from yesterday and the two from the conference. And the second video that's doing really well is the Alex interview with Phil Craig of the Cape Independence Advocacy Groups, where he confirmed that they'd handed over a referendum for Cape Independence. And the third video is the live stream of Bronwyn's interview with David Shapiro. I see there's a similar theme on the podcast side of things. Rob Hurst off top of those pops. Uh, Justin's interview with David Shapiro where they chat about Capitech, Aspen and Sassel. And then last night's business power wrapping up the top three. But let's look in on the news and markets. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brad Rock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Here's the latest flash briefing. I'm Nadja Swat. South Africa can't afford to implement a basic income grant, South Africa's biggest business organization said, wading into an argument that has divided the ANC. The country should instead consider an unemployment insurance type product Business Unity South Africa said in a statement. Even then, it should only be put in place if labor market reforms are enacted to boost employment, the fiscal deficit does not widen as a consequence, and payments are to those in need and are not universal. With the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic pushing South African un unemployment to a record, calls for a basic in income grant to be implemented have increased. South Africa recorded its first quarterly primary budget surplus since 2018 in the three months through June, a sign that the National Treasury's efforts to bring spending in line with revenue are succeeding. According to the South African Reserve Bank's quarterly bulletin, the government's primary balance swung to a surplus of 9.8 billion rand, or 0.6% of gross domestic product, in the first quarter of the 2022 fiscal year, compared with a deficit of 2.2% of GDP in the previous three months. New data shows how South Africa's tourism industry was completely hammered by lockdown in 2020, losing approximately 164 billion rand in tourism spending and around 1 million jobs tied to the industry. According to the Bureau for Economic Research, 
The jobs lost are not only in the tourism industry, but many other sectors that are tied to it all across the value chain. Currently, any recovery in the sector is being driven by local and regional travel and hospitality, with much of the international market still unable to travel to South Africa. Occupancy is down and the industry's contribution to GDP is a third of what it was pre-lockdown. Justin, how are the markets looking? This is the Market Report and I'm Justin Roberts. The JSEL share index is down at 64,000. In the currency markets, the rand is weaker against all the major currencies to 15 rand 14 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 50 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 67 cents to the euro. Gold is low at $1,731 an ounce. Kruger rand is trading at around 27,500 rand. Brent crude is up, trading around the $80 mark barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 635,000 rand. In the financial news, JSE-listed cement manufacturer PPC has provided an update on its restructuring and refinancing project, which has been underway since November 2019. The project is centered on implementing a sustainable capital structure and improving the investment prospects of the group. The need to undertake restructuring and refinancing was primarily as a result of investment in PPC Barnett, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, a role which PPC assumed in 2014 as a project sponsor, but which also resulted in contingent claims against PPC to provide ongoing deficiency funding to PPC Barnett. PPC advised that the South African lenders had agreed to review the need for a capital raise should the South African business of the company continue to de-gear towards a sustainable debt metric of around two times EBITDA. Brent crude oil soared above $80 a barrel, the latest milestone in a global energy crisis on signs that demand is running ahead of supply and depleting inventories. The international crude benchmark extended a recent run of gains to hit its highest mark since October 2018, whilst West Texas intermediary also climbed. Oil's latest upswing has come with a flourish of bullish price predictions from banks and traders, Forecasts for surging demand this winter and speculation the industry isn't investing enough to maintain supplies. The jump to $80 a barrel also is adding inflationary pressure to the global economy at a time when prices of energy commodities are soaring. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Tuesday, September 28th, and this is your FT News Briefing. Two regional Federal Reserve chiefs yesterday said they're stepping down, and central bankers around the world are gathering today virtually at an ECB forum, and the hot topic will likely be inflation. Plus, Germany's elections are over, and now its political parties are wrangling to form a coalition government. Don't hold your breath on that happening anytime soon, though. It's worth remembering that in 2017, it took 171 days to form a government. So it could run well into next year. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Okay, so this is probably not what Federal Reserve Chair G. Powell wants to be dealing with as he manages U.S. monetary policy at this critical point in time. But yesterday, two of his top officials announced they're stepping down. Robert Kaplan is the president of the Dallas Fed, and Eric Rosengren heads the Boston Federal Reserve Bank. Rosengren said he's stepping down for health reasons, but the announcement comes as the two men face an investigation into their trading activities. The FT's Colby Smith has more on what landed them in hot water. Both Kaplan and Rosengren um, were found to have been active investors uh, last year in financial markets. And so Kaplan had stakes of uh, more than 1 million in 27 publicly traded companies. Rosengren had smaller stakes, um, but he was you know, heavily involved in some real estate investment trusts. And uh, last year was a really unprecedented year for the U.S. Central Bank. They waded into you know, a number of markets that uh, you know, they really haven't had a presence in in the past. They uh, dropped interest rates to zero. They were buying treasuries, agency mortgage-backed securities. To that list, they added corporate bonds, uh, corporate bond ETFs, uh, municipal bonds. For a lot of people, it, it was certainly eyebrow-raising to see that Fed officials were so involved in financial markets during this time. So, Colby, what has the Fed said about this so far? 
Kaplan and Rosengren and, and the Fed itself has said that none of this trading activity went against the ethics standards set out by the Fed and had all been okayed by general counsel at the various regional banks, as well as the, the central bank itself. But Powell uh, alluded last week to, to the notion that some of those standards might need to be tightened in the wake of uh, these revelations. Colby, what do these resignations mean for the Fed's big undertaking right now, which is managing the U.S. economy as it emerges from the pandemic, you know, dialing back stimulus measures, tightening monetary policy and just, you know, dealing with inflation? So both Rosengren and Kaplan were both seen as pretty hawkish members of the Fed, meaning that they were, you know, hoping to tighten monetary policy a bit more quickly than I think um, some others on uh, on the committee. So if anything, you know, their removal is somewhat helpful for those who want a bit more of a patient approach when it comes to thinking about the policy stance. But I don't think more broadly this is going to completely upend monetary policy decisions. One of the key decisions has already been made really about kind of the taper timeline, which Powell mentioned last week. Now we don't know for certain when they're actually going to announce the reduction of that support, but we know, um, you know, it's quite possible that we get that at the next meeting. Now, after that, there's not really a policy decision to make for quite some time because the thresholds for interest rate increases are just significantly more stringent than um, they were for tapering. So any decision um, on interest rates is quite a ways off, uh, meaning that, you know, there is some time to sort through some of these personnel issues. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Now, amid all that Federal Reserve drama, Fed Chair Jay Powell is today meeting other central bankers from around the world at a forum. It's hosted by European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde. And all these folks are dealing with how to dial back pandemic stimulus measures. And the FT's Martin Arnold says the big topic for all of them is inflation. They're still sticking to the line that they think a lot of what's driving inflation this year is temporary and it'll fade next year. And that's certainly the line that we've heard from Christine Lagarde talking about this yesterday when she appeared for her regular uh, appearance in front of the European Parliament. And MEPs were asking her about inflation, about electricity prices, gas prices, which have shot up in Europe this year. And her answer to this continues to be that a lot of the factors driving higher inflation are temporary and that the ECB expects them to fade next year. But she did say there are upside risks that some of these price pressures could continue into next year, particularly if some of these supply chain bottlenecks that we've seen continue into next year. And also they're watching very closely at the ECB to see if there's any sign of so-called second round effects whereby workers start to demand higher levels of wages in response to the higher cost of living that we're seeing. And if that starts to happen, you could see a price spiral, which would be very worrying for, for central bankers as it means they'd have to start to think about tightening policy perhaps more drastically and suddenly than they would otherwise like to do. Martin Arnold is the FT's Frankfurt Bureau Chief. Germany's nail-biter of an election is over, and the country's Social Democratic Party has won by a hair, barely beating out Angela Merkel's long-ruling party, the Christian Democrats, or CDU. But it's still unclear who will be the next chancellor. What is clear is there's a lot of wrangling going on as political parties try to form a coalition government. I'm joined by our Europe editor, Ben Hall, now to talk about what's next for Germany. Hey, Ben. Hello. So, Ben, what's happening with coalition talks right now? So, at the moment, the SPD and the CDU are both claiming to have a kind of mandate to lead negotiations, their preferred formation. And in the meantime, the Greens and the FDP, the Liberals, have decided to get together themselves and to try and bridge their differences before even talking to the other two bigger parties. So, Ben, what are the most likely alliances that could result from this? I understand there could be some colorful configurations. 
Well, we're probably looking at either of two three-way coalitions. One is known as Jamaica because it's the colours of the Jamaican flag. So it would be the CDU, which is black, uh, with the CSU, which is their Bavarian counterparts, the Greens, who are green, and the FDP, who are gold. So the other formulation is what's known as traffic light. So it's uh, gold for the, for the Free Democrats, green for the Greens, and red, obviously, for the Social Democrats. Very illustrative, Ben. I like, I like those visuals. So tell me a little bit about the man who leads the winning party, Olaf Scholz. So Schultz um, is a moderate uh, in the social democratic spectrum. He is cautious, quite orthodox on the public finances, and he's definitely emulated Angela Merkel's sort of leadership style, careful, steadfast, unflashy, and Germans seem to lap it up during the campaign. And it's one of the reasons why the SPD essentially outperformed expectations. Now, how long will it take before they agree on a new government? Could it be soon? Well, the main parties vowed to try and complete coalition talks by Christmas. It's worth remembering that in 2017, it took 171 days to form a government. So it could take, it could run well into next year. There is a sort of determination, particularly on the side of the smaller parties, to sort of set the terms of the next coalition. And in a way, the bigger parties will have to a large extent go along with that. So the real question is, is whether the Liberals and the Greens can bridge their quite considerable differences. And the good thing is, is they're sort of setting about that right now. So that suggests that they are quite serious about it. Ben Hall is the FT's Europe editor. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me today for our regular Tuesday Market Insight is 10X founder Stephen Nathan. Stephen, always a lot to chat about. Last week, the South African Reserve Bank kept interest rates unchanged, which was largely expected by the market. This is at a time where policymakers all over the world are starting to slowly looking to increase rates after 18 months of extremely accommodative monetary policy. One of the concerns is that inflation may be running a little bit hot. Let's ignore CPI figures for a second. Inflation is evident just by the increase in the price of your breakfast or coffee at your local delicatessen. If you're a policymaker, would you have done the same thing? Uh, yes, Justin, I would have. Um, you know, as you say, kind of, if you look around the world, I mean, firstly, interest rates uh, are at record lows uh, because of the very swift uh, monetary and uh, and kind of central bank response uh, to the pandemic. Um, and then we've seen various countries do sort of sort of quite divergent things. I mean, if you look at the US, still no rate increases this year, uh, and they've got one of the fastest growing economies. Their unemployment is back below five percent. Whereas you look at many of the emerging markets. Uh, where the economic growth is still below where it was in, uh, say, 2019 pre, uh, pre-COVID, pre uh, they've been raising rates quite aggressively. Um, you know, and in South Africa, we're definitely in the emerging market camp. We know our growth is low, our demand is low, but there are inflationary pressures, and there are inflationary pressures actually all around the world. It's, it's, it's interesting. The inflationary pressures are coming not so much from demand, but uh, because there's a shortage of supply, there's a, a kind of supply chain bottlenecks. Um, so, so, you know, in South Africa, uh, it's great that, uh, that we're able to have uh, uh, interest rates at low levels. And hopefully they stay at low levels to help stimulate uh, you know, economic growth. But, it's, but, but on its own, it's not enough. On the topic of inflation, Stephen, oil prices are generally one of the big drivers there. We've seen Brent crude pass $80 a barrel in the last 24 hours. That's the highest since 2018. With the rand weakening and the oil strengthening like it has, seems like a Goldilocks moment for Sassel shareholders. Uh, yes, you know, you spoke about breakfast. My breakfast cost me more. I filled up with petrol recently, and I think it was it was just under 18 <laughs> rand a litre. Actually, uh, I have a diesel car, and I, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, you know, South Africa, we're a, we're, a, we're a net importer of oil. So rising oil prices, while it's good for Sassel, for the country as a whole, it's bad. So we've got a rising oil price and we've got a weaker rand. So, you know, that, that, that isn't great. As you say, good for Sassel, 
Um, you know, Sassel, uh, Sassel's looking really cheap. Uh, it's kind of on about a 5 PE and with uh, an oil price at this level, it's very supportive for, uh, for earnings. And what we're seeing, uh, as you mentioned, the oil price, it's at a, I think it's a three-year high. Uh, it wasn't that long ago we were talking about will oil ever get below 40 again and you know now we're talking about 80 and a lot of people are talking about going to you know going to 90 by the end of the year but uh, it's an interesting one because the world is moving away from fossil fuels a uh, very strong increase uh, uh, increased focus on climate change moving we're moving away but uh, it's not a simple transition so so it's kind of how do we bridge that divide and there's definitely uh, a shortage of uh, 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 of oil, uh, and there's a, uh, a shortage of alternatives. Let's say, uh, and demand is growing all the time. So it does look like a good uh, a good time for for Sassel, but not such a good time for us at the pumps and the country as a whole. Stephen, this China theme tends to come up every week. I saw an interesting tweet by Pitfull Yun this morning. Since the inception at the end of 1992, the MSCI China index has returned 2.2 percent annually whilst the MSCI emerging market 7.8% and S&P 500 10.7%. That covers a 30-year period where the Chinese economy often grew at more than 10% a year. Seems counterintuitive. How does this work? Uh, yes, no, you, you know, you, you, you're exactly right. I mean, I responded recently to a tweet from uh, Michael Jordan, uh, you know, and he was talking about, you know, look at, like, as an example, he was talking about emerging markets. Uh, you know, higher growth rates than than developed markets, uh, uh, you know, much lower income levels, you know, and therefore, isn't that a great place to invest? And I made this very point that, uh, you know, often we confuse economic growth with shareholder returns. Uh, and China has been, um, uh, except for the last 10 years, if we go back, uh, you know, uh, prior uh, to, let's say, uh, 2010, uh, the Chinese market, uh, very, very poor returns, despite the uh, the, the the phenomenal economic growth and ec- economic growth, uh, you know, driven by government, uh, 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 state-owned enterprises, a lot of sort of uh, inter inter intertwined between government and the and the and, and the private sector. Government only the banks, the banks lending to the private sector. You know, it's the left hand lending to the right hand. But nonetheless, I mean, the economic growth and the uplift has been enormous in China. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean that shareholders have done well for a variety of reasons. Uh, not all of not all, it's not all profitable growth. So you can be growing, but not profitably. Uh, and I think that's probably where, you know, where China's coming back to. They've had, they've had 10 years uh, prior to the beginning of this year. If we go back, let's say, uh, 2010 to 2020, a phenomenal year uh, for investors in Chinese equities. Uh, and it looks like the Communist Party says, no, no, we actually prefer uh, the previous periods where we had strong economic growth, but uh, the rewards didn't go to uh, capitalists, uh, shareholders, and it went to broader society. Despite the Evergrande saga cooling somewhat, there's still a lot of concerns, as you mentioned, around China. Signia recently launched an emerging market ETF targeting exposure to China and other jurisdictions in the East. Given the similarities between 10X and Signia as passive asset managers, is the China theme something that you would recommend as an investment destination, or is there simply too much risk? Well, I've always held the, the, the view, and it's a personal view, uh, you, know, you want to be well diversified. And, uh, you know, when I look at investing, I kind of have two big buckets. I mean, the one bucket is your uh, is kind of your long term investments, your banker investments, uh, where you don't want to speculate too much. You want to try and uh, uh, get good returns, but not be overly greedy. And there I would go for broad diversification. So I wouldn't necessarily have all my money in China or all my money, say, in the US. I mean, there you want diversification by geography and also by asset class. So not only just equities, but a bit of uh, property bonds, et cetera. Uh, and then you've got your more speculative bucket. And, and there's, there's always a little bit of speculation in all of us. Some people have more of it and some people have less of it. Uh, but if you've got that sort of a need to fold, you know, that could be uh, a much smaller part of your overall wealth. I would say 10%, uh, not more than 10%, unless you're a really good trader. Um, and, uh, you know, and there you might want to, you know, go for a couple of shares or a, um, you know, a sector like like China. But I would be weary of China. I think we've spoken a lot about it uh, and, and many others have. I mean, the risk of China has increased tremendously. Uh, the, the share price has reflected some of that, but we just don't know if it's all of that. So I would, I would be pretty cautious on China right now. There's just, and it's, it's incredible 
um, it's almost like a domino effect. You know, it started off uh, uh, with sort of Ant Financial. That was the the uh, the financial services arm out of Alipay. With that, uh, a very high profile listing was stopped uh, towards end of last year, and that was like the first thing. And then, uh, you know, gradually, uh, it's 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 sort of contaminating many other sectors within uh, within China. So it was it was it was as I say the uh, sort of financial services, you know, then it went into uh, the taxis, <laughs> uh, then it went into online education, you know, now it's into property, uh, you know, so so I think this thing's got a while to play out and I'd be a little bit cautious about being overly invested in China right now. Taking a bit of a U-turn, Stephen, Adapt.it came out with the results today. I don't think there's too much interest in the numbers given the Valaris offers pretty much a foregone conclusion. But are these delistings and foreign interests in local companies, are these signposts that companies on the JSC are relatively inexpensive compared to other emerging market peers? Um, yes, I think that you know, South Africa is in, inexpensive on a relative uh, uh, value basis. Um, but it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, that, that, that people aren't aware of this. So, so they're inexpensive for a reason. And I think the sentiment towards South Africa is not great. And investors would be prepared to pay up for greater certainty on policy and for better expected uh, long-term returns. Um, the, the delisting of companies, you know, uh, it can be good and it can be bad. I think something like uh, Belarus, a, um, uh, a foreign investor coming into the country is good because, you know, if foreigners are prepared to come in and they're prepared to pay a premium uh, for you know uh, for a public uh, company, then I think that is you know that is great. Uh, what isn't so great is when we see delistings on the JSC just because the companies uh, their share prices aren't uh, rewarding what uh, the company believes is fair value. The cost of listing is very high, so there's quite a lot of regulatory and compliance, and it's just not worth it for them uh, because the uh, the costs outweigh the benefits, uh, and that would be a bad sign because that means that. You know, we're not getting uh, enough uh, uh, economic growth. We're not getting enough opportunities. Uh, and a, um, a vibrant stock market, you know, the stock market is there to raise capital, to fund new uh, investments, uh, infrastructure, uh, and investments create jobs. Uh, so, you know, we'd, we'd rather like to see more listings, uh, but we, you know, we haven't seen that for a while in South Africa. Lastly, Stephen, I was chatting to Sean Pesh last week. He's concerned about the mega caps in the U.S., predominantly the fangs, getting pumped up as a result of this increasing popularity towards passive investing, people buying the index, for example, the S&P 500, and as a result, getting large exposures into these big tech names. What's your take here? Uh, well, Justin, I've got a completely different view. Uh, so let me just say, maybe I'm biased. So I've just got to, we all got to be aware of that, uh, being a big fan of indexing. Um, but I've been defending indexing for about 15 years in South Africa, and there's always a different argument uh, for, for, you know, for sort of uh, indexing and why it could be good or bad. Um, now, just this argument that uh, that uh, uh, you know, index funds drive up uh, prices of large caps uh, doesn't hold water because what an index fund does is they just buy the index in proportion to the current weightings. So let's take the FANGs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, et cetera, and let's assume that that is 25% of the S&P 500. So if you invest in an S&P 500 index fund, then, then, then all um, an index fund would do is invest your, let's put, say you put in $1,000, would invest that proportionately across the market. So it would be equal. They wouldn't favor large caps over small caps. So, you know, I certainly don't buy that argument. There's been a lot of arguments about index funds and how they, uh, uh, you know, they're going to cause inefficiencies and it's going to be bad. For, I mean, there wasn't that long ago. I think it was Sunlam, a Sunlam economist about three, four years ago, uh, in my opinion, wrote an outrageous article saying that because of index funds, capitalism is dead because you're never going to be able to raise capital. You know, what we see, what's quite interesting is that, because uh, uh, one of the concerns with index funds is, well, if everyone's passive, you know, then then where does the marginal buyer come from? How do we set prices? How do we raise capital? Uh, but if you look, what's happened is that although index funds are more and more popular, uh, the volume of trading uh, on these exchanges has actually gone up enormously. And if you look over the last year with Reddit and the meme stocks and all these retail investors getting in on the action, you know, there's so many people who are looking to trade stocks, whether it be retail investors, hedge funds, investment banks. So the actual uh, value traded 
uh, is actually increasing. So there's much more liquidity and much more price discovery, despite the fact that index funds are also on the rise. I'm Joshua Roberts of Biz News, and you've been listening to Tuesday's Market Insights guest, Stephen Nathan. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. I'm Nadja Swart for Business, and joining me today is Jordan Hill Lewis. He is the Democratic Alliance's mayoral candidate for Cape Town. Jordan, thank you for your time. By way of introduction, can you give me a bit about your background? Sure. I'm originally from Plett in the Southern Cape. I moved to Cape Town as a young boy and have lived here ever since. I live in the northern suburbs in a place called Edgemead. Uh, I am an economist by training uh, in economics and finance and I started getting involved in politics in high school already. I got very involved in student politics and have worked in research and in various political staff roles before running for office in, in Parliament, where my portfolios have mainly been in, in the economy, in, in trade firstly and then in finance the last few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I am married and have a young daughter. That's me. And politics, what motivates you to get involved? I mean, from a young age, you say in high school. Yeah. What's behind it? So I think I'm motivated by uh, the a, a need to derive some sense of personal meaning from what I do. I don't see it as, as just a profession or a job for a job sack. Uh, I, I have to feel like I'm making some kind of positive difference. And I think po- politics is the best place in, to do that because there is so much systemic leverage in politics. In, in, in other areas, you can fix one specific policy area or you can make a positive contribution there and that's very very important uh, i have the utmost respect for people that do that but in politics you can affect systemic change and even a five percent improvement at a systemic level can have a huge knock-on effect for society at large and for millions of people and so that gives me a huge sense of of personal meaning and that's why i i love politics and why i got involved and what platform are you running on so I, I'm convinced that the next phase in South Africa's democratic development is going to be about strong local governments and residents groups are doing more for themselves because national government cannot do uh, and is failing to do so much. And so as we see this continuing collapse in basic services at a national level, I think that that space must be filled by assertive local governments who have got the wherewithal, the skills, the the expertise, the financial resources to step into the gap and to say we are going to protect our residents from the consequences of these crumbling national services. And so I think that's a very hopeful and exciting vision because it's basically saying we refuse to accept that South Africa's future for the next decade or for the foreseeable future is one of decline Instead, we are going to do something about it. And the, the what we are going to do about it is to say we can do a lot more of these things for, for ourselves and, and uh, protect Cape Town from that sense of decline. Uh, and, and that's very exciting in things like crime and, and crime prevention, fighting crime and electricity and stopping load shedding in public transport. Uh, even in, in some economic policy in getting the economy growing faster than the rest of the country. So I really think that's, that's where the future is in, uh, in government in South Africa. And I'd like Cape Town to be at the forefront of pushing those boundaries mm-hmm. and essentially saying to the country, this is a model of how the country can and should work. Uh, mm-hmm. And we are leading the way. That's my platform. All right. And on that note, what is your stance on Cape independence? No, this is not about, this is not about isolationism. Uh, or balkanization. It is about making South Africa work. I'm a passionate South African. I love this country. It's my home. And I wanted to succeed. 
But the way that it will succeed is by devolving power to the lowest level of competent, strong, well-run government. I do understand, uh, Nadia, the emotional impetus behind the Cape independence movement because people are feeling hopeless about what they see happening in South Africa. And the more they feel hopeless, they look to the one place where things do work and they say, well, uh, you know, let's just kind of hive off that one place that does work and try to insulate ourselves from everything else. I don't think that that's the right way. I think that we can protect Cape Town from the national decline by doing more for ourselves and that that is a model for how South Africa can work. The same can happen in Johannesburg and Durban and, uh, uh, you know, Bloemfontein and, and Twine and elsewhere, wherever there are governments that actually have the wherewithal and the assertiveness and the gumption to get it done, to, to, to push the boundaries. Uh, and so that's, that's my uh, approach to that question. So I, I perfectly understand the emotional impetus, but I have a different view on how to solve it. I would also just add, finally, that yeah. I regard it as a huge compliment of the DA's track record in government that people want to make a country out of the one place where, where the DA has consistently governed uh, and governed so well and has this track record of success. I don't think anyone would be calling for Cape Independence if this was an ANC-governed province or city. Yeah. Uh, and you know, then then we'd be calling for DA government, and and so I think that that goes to show that this is not about this is not about political independence. That that is not the the way to go. This is about uh, making South Africa work by backing strong, assertive local governments like the DA. And what is it about the DA that made you decide to become a member instead of establishing your own political party? <laughs> No, you, you've got to you've got to back uh, parties with strong brands and track records in in South Africa. It's extremely difficult in South Africa to start new political organisations because we are a vast country geographically, with very low media consumption in general. So that means you've got to talk to people. The the, the you know politics in South Africa is retail politics. It's door to door, street to street, house to house. And that is hugely time-consuming and resource-intensive. So the, the idea of a brand-new political party uh, making massive inroads, it's extremely difficult. One party has actually done it before, by the way, and that is COPE. But they messed it up. They, they got a million, one and a, half, one and a half, yeah, just over a million voters they got in six months. Uh, and they messed it up. And history will, will judge them very harshly for that. But... Um, but, you know, so, so I absolutely believe in the values of the DA. That's why I joined the DA in high school. And I'm, I'm at heart a liberal. I believe in individual freedom and, uh, and maximizing people's opportunities to live a life that, in which they are able to realize their full potential. Uh, and that political program and intellectual framework of liberalism is what the DA believes in and what attracts me to the party and what I want to try and execute in government. Uh, and I think that is the only way that South Africa can thrive as a country. Uh, so I'd like to try and be at the forefront of implementing that program. What do you think of the fact that 25% of the ANC's candidates are in their 20s? If that's true, that's, that's good news. Uh, you know, I am all in favor. It would, be, it, it would be slightly weird if I argued against that. Uh, as, as a very young candidate myself. I'm all in favor of young people taking a more active role in politics because uh, politics is profoundly impactful on the lives and life chances that young people have in this country. We have 75% youth unemployment, and we are not going to fix that doing what we've done for the last 30 years. That is not working. We've got to have really fresh thinking and fresh ideas. So that's great. Of course, in and of itself, it doesn't guarantee anything. It doesn't guarantee better outcomes. It's about the ideas that those people hold and the ideas that they are going to try and implement when they get into positions of power. Uh, now, if they are going to simply double down on the same failed policies that we've had for the last 27 years, then we're just going to get double the failure. Uh, what we need is really fresh thinking and uh, a willingness to try new ideas and push boundaries uh, and to question the dogmas and the ideological obsessions of the, last, of the last two decades. If they are those kind of people, then uh, that's exciting. 
This interview is brought to you by First Rand. Hi, I'm Linda van Tolberg for Biz News, and today I'm talking about a local seasoning brand, which is Oryx Desert Salt, which will soon be seen on shelves in the United States. It has joined a growing list of locally made South African products in accessing markets overseas, like Rooibos. And joining me today is Samantha Skyring, the CEO of Oryx Desert Salt. Hi, Samantha. Hi, Linda. Thank you for having me. So where did this idea come from? I met a colleague who was selling this beautiful salt to Germany, and he he saw that the market in South Africa was too small. And I felt that this beautiful salt from the Kalahari Desert, which is naturally organic and pure, um, I really believe that locals should be given the opportunity to have access to products from the country rather than them, them being sent overseas. And I was coming to the end. I had done seven years. I had my own NPO, which was called 20,000 Drums. But there was this sort of financial recession and companies weren't interested in emotionally, socially empowering projects. So I was looking for something new. Um, I'd also recently become a mum. And yeah, the, the thought of sharing this beautiful salt with the South Africans obviously popped to mind. And... Also, because I saw the opportunity of putting grinders on restaurant tables. I mean, it really is an amazing opportunity where we can have a product on table that gives brand awareness and people have the opportunity to, you know, to try the salt for themselves. So that was quite exciting for me. And yeah, so I started packing on my dining room table the cotton bags and, and the grinders. And, and that's how it all began. Was it a visit to the Kalahari that got you to the name and the idea of Oryx, which is a Gemsbok? So they weren't directly linked, but many years ago, in 2000, I did a very beautiful journey with five friends um, and we traveled Namibia. In fact, only three of us traveled Namibia for five months. And we ended up in Hartman's Valley, which is the, the last accessible valley in the Nam of Desert. And the road ends in a sand dune and you have to walk the last three kilometers over to the Kuneni River. And having been in the desert for three months and then coming across this incredible, wide, sort of glacial colored water with rock pools and white beaches and palm trees, we really had arrived in paradise. And boyfriend at the time and I decided to walk to the skeleton coast. So we walked 120 kilometers, seven days. And along the way, I had close encounters with the Oryx. And so seven years later, when I had the opportunity to brand salt from the Kalahari, this beautiful, you know, masked creature sprang to mind. And and what was amazing afterwards, once I had already chosen the logo and started, you know, branded the product, I met a shop owner of a health shop in Stellenbosch and she had grown up in Namibia and had Oryx were, you know, almost domesticated to them. And she said that some Oryx can go their entire lives without drinking water, but they can't go weeks or months without licking salt. It is so essential to their, their existence and survival in the harsh conditions of the Kalahari. And so, you know, it really is an incredible symbol and, and so perfectly apt. And many years later, I then had the final piece of the puzzle as to why they could go for such lengths of time not drinking water is that their hair is hydroscopic. It's microscopic little straws. And in the desert at night, there's this incredible moisture in June because of the disparity of temperatures from the day and nighttime. And so they absorb moisture directly through their hair and their skin into their bodies. And all vegetation swells at night. So they actually get hydrated when they eat. One of those miracles of nature. Oh, lovely story. How did you grow the business? So, yeah, after a year or so, I I did a crazy thing. I sold my house and I ended up buying 34 tons of salt, um, which is more than a garage full. Sure. There was kind of talk that I I needed to, you know, have some stock available Anyway, I tend to do a few crazy things. And and I started literally on the ground, going from restaurant to restaurant, speciality, you know, sort of daily shop um, and slowly growing it. And I knew I was running out of money. And I met a chef who had met the salt pan owner. And so I just made a phone call and I asked if I could come and meet with him. 
and we had a lovely two-hour conversation. And in that conversation, I said, I'm putting together a business plan and, you know, I'm needing a partner. And he said, well, please give it to me. And that was a very exciting moment that he was, it seemed like such a brilliant synergy, having the, the owner of the Sultan and then having me sort of create a, a premium product and market the product out into the market. But a year later, we weren't profitable and the, the company was obviously needing money to grow. And he was used to wholesale. He'd been in, in, in salt wholesale for 30 something years. And so PR and branding and websites and social media and all of those things were very unfamiliar to him. And he was getting slightly nervous of the investment that was needed in order to grow it. And so he said that he wanted out. And I then met two beautiful brothers, Garth and Ian Solomon, and they were just in the process of setting up Evolve Capital in order to invest in small businesses to bring you know, seed funding and capital, and as well as IP. They're both chartered accountants. Ian's an entrepreneur in his own right. And we've been together now for eight years, and that's been an amazing journey. They've definitely supported my personal growth into being a CEO of currently 20 staff. So, you know, they've, they really have been a, a huge part of it. Okay, and then you crack the overseas market. Um, I've seen it in the UK on the shelves, and I've seen it on Amazon, and now you've I mean, the biggest market probably, which for you at the moment, it was the US. Yeah, a very, very exciting moment. I have been doing uh, international trade shows for about six or seven years. And so discovered Whole Foods, you know, via the foodies and at the trade shows sort of six, seven years ago. And I think from then, getting to understand what Whole Foods stands for was my goal and my dream and my intention. And been beautiful to watch as I've grown and as I grow the business grows as business grow I need to grow and for me it was kind of a matter of time that when the right moment presented itself it would happen when you know the business needed to be very solid uh, in order to enter the U.S. market I really had that moment when I was presenting to the buyer of Whole Foods and Rx was already 10 years old then and I realized how much knowledge I had of the industry of merchandising and all the tiny aspects which at three years four years old in a business one unless you come out of that industry of you know fmcg one wouldn't have and i had traveled to expo west in los angeles in march of 2019 and i'd done a lot of networking on linkedin prior to that and met somebody um, i'd actually passed through the endeavor sort of local it's an entrepreneur organization and I'd gone through the local round and was being put forward to international. And so I reached out to the Endeavor community in the US and Mike managed to get the email address of the salt spice category manager buyer at Whole Foods. And I followed up and I introduced and I heard nothing and I followed up again and I heard nothing and, and then life got busy. And then Corona happened and we lost 70% of our business last year due to no tourism and restaurants and hospitality and was at home. And, uh, you know, you hear the saying entrepreneurs must work, spend more time on their business and not in their business, (laughs) which is a classic default. And because I had the time, you know, I really knew that I needed to do, needed to pull something out the bag in order to move forward and so I followed up and again two weeks later and again two weeks later and then three weeks after that I got an an email saying I apologize for the delay in getting back to you which was already a very positive response and and then five months later I did the presentation and we got the listing almost to the day of Rx's 10th birthday which was really beautiful and felt very much on track (laughs) to our growth. The first shipment's on its way? No, first shipment has landed and has already been distributed to 13 DCs. The second container is on the water, uh, left a week ago, and the third container is busy being packed. We, we just sort of stocking up the third party warehouse in case the orders go faster than what we anticipate, which will be a very exciting thing to happen. And then, of course, my understanding is that Whole Foods is a, is a trendsetter in the U.S., And so we're giving Whole Foods exclusivity for four months. I want to always ensure and, you know, really take care of them as my absolute priority for giving us this 
opportunity of entering the US market. And we will open up the market in January to other, you know, speciality and other, other retailers. We're going to grow it sort of slowly in a way just to ensure that everything is going smoothly rather than running too fast and getting ahead of ourselves. This interview was brought to you by First Rand. For more stories of South African success, visit the Good Hope section at biznews.com. I'm Nadja Swart for Business, and I'm joined by Helen and Anthony Deegan. Helen, you and your husband, you started an organization called Armour. Action for Responsible Management of Our Rivers. So can you just give me the background? What does Armour do? A neighbor phoned us way down the Crocodile River and said it was an absolute state. It stank and the color was awful and so forth. And what could be done? I mean, you know, a question like that sort of hangs in the air. What can be done about mm. the river? But we then decided on a um, petition, um, and we got about 400 people down the, the Yuxke, which runs into the crocodile and the crocodile and so forth, brought this petition. And then um, Anthony came up with the, the name um, um, of responsible management of our, our rivers. But um, I'm going to hand over to Anthony at that point, because then it became interesting. We, uh, with a petition, we sent it to about 60-odd organizations across South Africa, including the parliamentary committees, public protector, the um, green scorpions, etc. And that elicited a quite a quick response from Joburg Water, who uh, quite magically found emergency funding to begin maintenance of northern works, the northern wastewater treatment works, which is what had been dumping in the river for weeks. And uh, they began repairing these wastewater treatment works. And so, as I said, you know, earlier, or Helen said, Armour didn't start because of an intent. It started almost by accident. Because mm. we uh, then, with what the uh, result was of Johannesburg Water, uh, we were persuaded to start a, call it a lobby group, to continue the process of, engaging with the city of Joburg, particularly Joburg Water, on what mm. they could do to maintain the uh, wastewater treatment works. And that was 2015. Uh, so okay. that was the start of Armour, and uh, it grew from there. And I, I could add, our approach mm. was, I think, different and it worked. We said mm. we will challenge and support, because normally, you know, when things go wrong, Everyone jumps in the bandwagon and starts shouting and screaming and swearing mm. at whoever is supposed to be is mm. responsible. And mm. this has had interesting results. You know, you, you, you've got cooperation where before you would have had, you know, people defending and um, giving excuses. So you've received good response from government? From certainly City of Joburg, yes. Okay. We, we've engaged with most. And when I say City of Joburg, it's more Johannesburg mm. water. We okay. actually, uh, you know, have said that, in fact, our pressure has helped them to actually perhaps leverage more funding, get more um, priority attached to what they're doing, particularly with regard to rivers and the river responsibility. And the response from the communities around you? That's been very, very positive. And, in fact, while we started in 2015, there's been many other organizations like Hennett Survival, Fresh, which is an NGO, and others that have started and are engaged almost daily in cleaning up rivers, particularly in the Pretoria and um, Kuruleni area. The sense of environmental activism that you guys have, has it always been there or was there a particular incident before this that made you realize that it's something that you'd like to do work in? It's, it's been a sort of a, um, a road that went like this, starting in um, 1987. Um, the, there was a, an, a, an effort, what should I say, an attempt, and you helped me there. The, um, the government decided that they needed a, a, another large, low-cost housing um, establishment, and um, it was called Noeta in those days. And this, this included this beautiful area for about 50,000 low-cost houses. And we would, um, and all of us would just have to move. So we started the Green Belt Action Group, but also the first conservancy, Karebo Sarant, 
in in Fontaine because we felt we needed something to protect this area, which is absolutely beautiful. Three rivers, the Yerkesbe, mm. the Crocodile, the Hemops, the Skirverberg. The, I mean, it's it's grasslands, it's bush felt, it's mm. rivers. It is really, it's precious. So, um, and that that also has been a very long road over over thirty years of of countering things like um, gold mining, Anglo-American and Jinkor. They were doing you know, sort of searches for, for, for gold. Um, and abattoir and low-cost housing, another low-cost housing um, attempt, and fancy estates and all the rest of it. But all of which would have carved up this area, um, which we felt was, well, it shouldn't happen, and it didn't, because in the conservancy, the Kariyabosland became the, the Nostrasberg Conservancy because it spread between the, the R511, which is the road through Henops River, if you go from four ways towards Henops River, and the 512, which goes past okay. Syria, because this Syria is really close by. So, okay. yes, and I mean, um, then we had this, this court case, because... The Rapex wanted to start this this um, really fancy housing estate, the Afo, and that landed us in, in trouble. But we finally, like a friend of mine who's now since passed on, unfortunately she was about 51, and she got the ball rolling to, to, to make this play, um, I've proclaimed as an proper nature reserve, the Crocodile River Reserve, which is now official, whereas conservancies have no... No official, no legal um, status. Yeah. So what projects are you currently working on? Mainly armor. Yeah. yeah. I think there, there's, there's probably three areas. Sorry, I'm interrupting. Huh? There are three areas mainly. The one is to continue with the river cleanups. Now, when we started, we didn't intend to get really involved necessarily in river cleanups, but we have got involved. Uh, and that's because they've, they've burgeoned. They've become a huge thing across the country in the last five years or so. There have always been efforts, clean up beaches, clean up rivers. But in the last five years, it has now become very, very um, obvious, mainly because of the drive of certain individuals. Uh, not not specifically in armor, but other individuals who form their own organizations. And we support them, they support us. So that's the one thing, is, is river cleanups, which is ongoing. The second thing is the ongoing lobbying, because okay. members of the armor committee are involved either as chair or as members of organizations like the Yuxkate Catchment Management Forum, the Hennep's Management Forum, the the uh, Hardebius, no, not Hardebius, Broncos Strait um, Catchment Management Forum, uh, the Johannesburg, or at least the Yuxkera Working Group. These are all groups all around helping to manage, save, change, uh, rehabilitate rivers. So that's the other side is lobbying. But the third side, which is where Helen has come in very strongly, is the networking through Facebook. About 4,600 members on her Facebook, the Armour Facebook. That's her private Armour Facebook, if you like. And that has been, um, over the years, has built up a lot of networks, bringing in the Lone Rangers, the people who all over the country who are doing things, but not just reconnected. So that networking and connecting people has been one of the objects objectives of Armour as well. Just to close off with... If South African citizens would like to support you, how can they do that? Well, they can certainly go onto our website, uh, which is www.armor.org.za, uh, uh, and that will lead them to various things, including our Facebook. So that's that's okay. the one thing. But the second thing is, I think, to get involved and to challenge business. Um, you know, business... Uh, is often very backward in coming forward on issues like this. They see the environment as something which they might use, but not necessarily be much, have much responsibility for. And I think that government has huge responsibility for it. But the, there's a spin-off in the activism that has been done, and that is 
it has been creating links across the racial and class divides where, where people on a weekend get together cleaning up dirty nappies and polystyrene and plastic out of a, a polluted river. Everybody is equal and everybody is forming new relationships. So I think that is doing far more than any political movement to actually unite, build bridges, etc. And I think uh, companies should begin to actually look at how they can also join that movement. And that's it for today. From myself and the rest of the business team, have a good evening. Until tomorrow, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.